Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app takes your mobile phone and turns it into a mobile GPS, turns your smartphone into a GPS that you can use online or offline to view topographical maps, aerial maps, or with their hybrid layer, you can overlay the two and be able to, to view that. But one of the coolest features within Onyx is their offline feature. So if you're going to a remote place like I am soon in Alaska or on an elk hunt in the West or even most of the places that I personally hunt, whitetail hunting, I don't get cell phone service. And you're able to download the map areas ahead of time through the offline feature and be able to use your phone, even if it's on airplane mode, no cell service, anything. You're able to use that as a working GPS. And it's just, it's an incredible feature amongst many that the Onyx Hunt app has available. So if you head over to onyxmaps.com, you can learn more. And if you want to save 20% off of the Hunt app, use the coupon code EMW. The University of Elk Hunting, so Corey Jacobson, who just happens to be a guest on this on today's episode, and Elk 101 have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available. They have 17 different modules going through from the beginning planning phases through your gear, fitness, learning how to elk hunt, learning elk behavior, learning how to call, learning how to pack out the animal, everything in between. It's all one place. You don't need to go scouring the internet for things. Everything's in one spot. So head over to elk101.com, check out the University of Elk Hunting, and use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST to save yourself 20% off of a one-year membership to the online course. Tethered has come out with the lightest weight, safest, and most innovative hunting gear for saddle hunting in the market today. So one of the coolest things about uh, about Tethered in general is the fact that they're more about wanting to have people learn about saddle hunting and try it than they are about selling their gear. And you'll see that through their website. They have so many resources to learn about saddle hunting and which is where I've, I learned about it myself and was able to use a saddle last year and just really enjoy that process and their gear is is second to none so if you want to learn a little bit more about saddle hunting and and maybe dabble into trying it yourself head over to tethernation.com to check that and last but not least so friends over at exodus has something really cool to uh, to be able to share with everybody. So last year, I talked about they they launched their Velvet Fest campaign. So if you're not familiar with, with hashtag Velvet Fest, it's the official start to deer season, and Exodus helps get the ball rolling for everyone's summer scouting. So once that hits, that means that it's time to get the cameras ready and deployed. So from July 31st, so that was last Friday, all the way through August 21st, they're giving away amazing prizes for anyone that uses the hashtag VelvetFest on social media to share their whitetail adventures. So, and also, if you're interested in a trail camera, that'll also be the, the perfect opportunity to get ready for the season. 
every single camera order comes with a random prize card that you'll have to scratch off to reveal the prize. And I'm being told there's some monster deals that's with it. And also each week they'll have a special offer with a grand prize. So a teaser to that would be week one is a 2021 October archery hunt with a friend of mine, Steve Shirt Guide Service. Week two is a shoulder mount from Urine Taxidermy. Week three is a September archery hunt for this upcoming season with Wicked Obsession in Kentucky and a shoulder mount from the National Award winning studio Full Draw Taxidermy. So for any order on the website during this designated week, you'll be automatically entered to purchase um, for the grand prize. So there's a lot in this campaign. So if you just want to head over to the website and make sure that you're on their newsletter, just enter your email in there. You'll learn a lot more. So if you're not familiar with Exodus, which if you listen to this podcast before, I'm sure you are. But uh, over the last five years, Exodus just keeps showing their build quality of trail cameras that just work. And they have the best warranty in the market right now with every single camera being backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with theft and damage coverage. So it's five years that you get to be covered by their warranty. And so if the cameras. I haven't had any issues uh, with warranty other than a bear destroying my camera, which they replaced it at half cost. But other than that, everything's been great. And um, so be sure to take part of the hashtag Velvet Fest celebration and be sure to tag myself in it because I want to see what everyone's up to this summer in their scouting tactics. Okay, so on this episode, I'm joined by Corey Jacobson and we're going to talk all about elk hunting, of course. So Corey's been on the podcast before. He's definitely no stranger to it. But this episode's even, you know, even more different than some of the past ones. We dive into some new things, go through some stories with him, have him break down those stories to see, you know, what he did, why why he did it, and I really think there's some valuable information in this. And just uh, to give you a heads up. For the, the intro here, I guess I should have said this at the beginning, but for this intro here, I'm recording this after midnight uh, as the day it releases. So if you're listening to it on the first day, then I just recorded this a few hours ago. Um, extremely tired and just got to make sure I get this, this episode out here. Getting a lot of stuff prepped for the Alaskan hunt and, and just working around the house and doing a whole bunch of stuff, staying busy as usual. But, uh, yeah. So anyways, apologize for that, but, um, I hope that, uh, you enjoy this episode with Corey. And if you do like it, head over to Apple podcasts, wherever you listen to it and leave a rating and review that helps out a ton. So it's uh, greatly appreciated. So enjoy this episode with Corey Jacobson. Okay, we're live. I have on the line a good friend of mine and and longtime uh, podcast guest here. He's been on a bunch of times, but it's been been about a year since we've talked on the phone, and that's Corey Jacobson. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I, uh, when you said it's been about a year, I thought, no, there's no way, but it's uh it must be because elk season is coming up quickly yes yes elk season is coming up um and hopefully everyone's you know getting prepared for it because it's the summer's flying by i I don't know about you but it's creeping up uh you know 
a lot faster, it seems. Totally, yeah. It seemed like time started standing still in March and April, and I thought, man, we're never going to get out of out of this season, and now it's we can't hit the brakes hard enough to slow it down. It's going to be here, and here it comes. Yeah, I know. It uh, that was the exact same thing. You know, it felt like in March and April being, you know, we were joking about before this, you know, stuck at home, but not really. We were, you know, still able to do uh, a lot of things, you know, through through that stuff. Since we love the, you know, being able to do things outside and everything. But but before before we dive into this, Corey, you've been on before, but I'd like you to give a just a brief background on yourself and uh, you know why I'm talking to you here. Yeah, no, I just, uh, you know, my background is in engineering and, and I worked in that field for about 10 years and realized that, you know, my whole life had been spent outdoors and being stuck in a cubicle just wasn't, wasn't, there, there was a void for sure. And uh, so I knew I wanted to get something outside of that. So I started in construction and uh, that just kind of became a stepping stone that allowed me to have the freedom to be able to start progressing towards something in the outdoors and I really had no no direction there necessarily but it it led me to start a website called elk101.com and through that uh, just a lot of growth and progression over the last 11 or 12 years and uh, currently still run elk101.com the University of Elk Hunting online course is is a part of that and then you know, we really just focus on uh, elk hunting related content uh, that's kind of centered around education and, and entertainment. So that's what I do kind of in a nutshell from day to day is I, I get to think about elk hunting 365 <laughs> days a year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now you probably did that before, but now you get to do it and get paid. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's the good side. The, the negative side is now it's a real job. So, you know, I'm kind of locked into some of those things that come along with it and certainly not complaining, but there's, you know, you, you look at it from the outside and it's like, Oh, that's, you know, you're living the dream. And I am, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I fully realize that, but I think anytime you attach, you know, your livelihood to it, it, uh, it definitely brings an element that is work-like and it's not always, some some days it's not as dreamy as others. We'll put it that way. Yeah, it's funny when when I started uh, the website and the podcast and everything. I had a few people that were in the the industry tell me, you know, just take it easy at first and see if that's it's not for everybody to turn their passion into uh, you know into a business. They said, you know, it it all depends on the the type of person you are, but sometimes it can it can almost ruin things for you, and other times it. It definitely, you know, exemplify, exemplifies that. But, um, you know, there's like with any job, you're going to have the, the, the good days and the bad days. So it's interesting to, to hear that from, from your side of it too. Totally. No, and it's, it, you said it exactly right. There's going to be good days and bad days. And I think the beauty of, of what I do is there's a lot more good days than bad days. And, you know, but it's still work. And that's why not everybody is, is doing it. And, and, uh, sometimes I think it's probably even more work, but yeah, uh, 
poor elk hunters who are used to getting slapped in the face with brush continually and climbing <laughs> straight up hills and <laughs> over blowdowns. <laughs> just, yeah, it just makes it feel like it's another normal day in in the elk woods. <laughs> That's funny. I um yeah, just like you know, I, I the one thing that I always thought was like I'd see you know guys like you and and others that are you know once the fall comes and you're doing you know a ton of hunting you know week after week. I think that would be that would be very tough. I mean, it sounds like a dream, but man, elk hunting for a couple of weeks is rough on on the body and your head and everything else. To do that for you know a, a month or a month and a half straight, that's that's a lot. <laughs> it is, and honestly, we we don't hunt that much. Um, we hunt a lot, but there's definitely breaks in there, and it's more. You know, I did a, I think a 12 or 13 day hunt in Colorado several years ago and I had three little kiddos at home and just after about day seven or eight, you know, I missed them every day, but after day seven or eight, it was like, what am I doing here? This, this isn't fun. This, you know, I just, it took the fun out of it. And so I got home, I talked to my wife and we kind of structured it just so that I'll go on a hunt seven or eight days and I'm home for at least three or four days just to unwind, just to, you know, be part of the family, go to sporting events and things like that. And so we do, you know, we try to go on two to three hunts, uh, during the fall. And then pretty much the rest of it is, is hunting from home with the family and, uh, doing that. And it, you know, we, we definitely, uh, string it out a little bit into October and even into November if we can and make it last a little longer. Um, but there'll be a day, you know, and we'll be able to say, Hey, we're going to take 10 or 12 days straight and, and go hunt here and really immerse ourselves in that hunt. And, you know, where we're at now, sometimes we have three of us with tags and we have a seven day hunt. It, uh, puts a little bit of extra pressure on us just trying to, to fill those tags and have a successful hunt. And, feels a little rushed sometimes, but it's, uh, it is what it is. And I think it's, it's the right choice for, for right now. Yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense. And, and, you know, also anyone that's listened to the podcast before has heard your name on every single episode at the beginning. Um, as you know, at the, at the beginning, I talk about the university of elk hunting online course and, you know, kind of go through that. And, and, and during those, I guess you could call it, a, you know, an advertisement, but, you know, I talk about, you know, I break down different modules and talk about different things that, that you learn from it. And, you know, basically going through what is there 17 different modules that you have in the, the entire online course? I think so. Yeah. 50, 54, 55 chapters, something like that. Yeah. I noticed this year was, I think it was this year, another one or two were added or maybe it was last year, but it always seems like there's more content getting added to it. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things from, from my perspective before I, you know, ever knew you, I had, uh, from the first year you launched that course was the first year I was going elk hunting and I, you know, I, I bought a membership to the course and the way I explain it to people is it's your one-stop shop for learning everything when it comes to elk hunting, um, to be able to give you that base. You know, I used to spend hours, well, more than hours, just hours and hours on the computer. I was doing it the, when I was first getting into it, trying to look through forums and do all this stuff to, to learn it. And, 
it made it a lot easier to be able to follow this, you know, course structure and be able to go through it and, and, you know, it kind of cut out all of the, the nonsense that you try to find that you're trying to, you know, sift through on the internet and be able to have all that information there to be able to help you with your scouting, help you choosing an area, all that stuff, which is really great. I mean, the, the one thing, Corey, I think that it could add though, is, is having, you know, a, an aspect where you go out and you pick the unit and you pick the spot to go into, but that, that might be asking for too much. a platinum membership i'll i'll pick the unit and do your e-scouting for you and (laughs) yeah i can't imagine what the price tag on that would be (laughs) Uh, i can't imagine how many people would make mad when i send somebody into the area they hunt (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and and it's funny through the through that course and then through our conversation we had last year led me to hunting a spot in Idaho and in which that, you know, you and I had talked a little bit, you know, through email on, but I ended up killing my bull on the, well, I guess it was essentially the first morning of the hunt. And it was, you know, it just through, you know, a few years of experience and then continually trying to learn more, um, you know, about elk hunting and everything as able to you know, luck into that. So it was, it was pretty cool to, you know, see that, that work and preparation come together. So I owe a lot of that, uh, to you and, and, you know, your help there. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And that's honestly, I just love to, to hear stories like that, you know, and it's, it's disheartening to hear the story of somebody that's been hunting for 10 or 11 years and still hasn't filled their tag. And, you know, it's, it's impossible to be able to physically go out and hunt with, everybody so i thought you know the online course is maybe the the next best thing where i can share some of those experiences and i'm far from from uh being consistently successful at the you know at the level that i would want to be continually working to do that i'm continually learning and uh you know i've had a lot of failures in 35 years of of bow hunting for elk and uh if i'm able to share some of those in a way that that help maybe shorten that learning curve for people so that they're able to share a story like yours, you know, where you went out and you did the work and you, you invested in yourself and your knowledge, your physical conditioning, all of those things. And, you know, you said you lucked into it, but you, uh, you earned it, you put in the work and things came together and that's the way it seems to work most of the time is if you put in the work, then things do, you, you, you seem to luck into more experiences and opportunities like that. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing that was funny, and I don't know if I shared this with you at all, but I, uh, you know, based on the, the course and one of the things I want to talk about a little bit today, but was through the e-scouting portion, you know, I found this area that, that had, you know, what looked like the picture perfect spot. And I'm like, I feel like everybody's going to find, you know, this, but it, 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 it had, you know, an, a nice meadow. You could see at the bottom, there looked like a little pond there. So you had food and water, and then you had dark timber and a nice saddle that was leading into it. And everything just seemed right. And I, I got super excited about it. I marked a pin on Onyx and I shared it with my two hunting partners and I sent it and I labeled it bull down and I ended up shooting my bull 60 yards from that waypoint. That is crazy. It's, that part is luck, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was really, really cool to, to see that. So, 
That is funny. You know, and we have, we've had similar experiences last year. Uh, I did some East guidance unit, you know, I've been in for a long, long time and hunted it and just thought, you know, I'm going to expand a little bit, always wanting to find that little pocket. And, you know, you have areas where we hunt and the elk disappear at different times and trying to figure out where they go when they disappear. And through that, I, I kind of did the same thing. I put a pin and I thought, I've got to hike in here and check it out. And it was like a 3,000 foot vertical climb to get in there. It was about three miles and uh, got in there and literally where I'd put my pin of where I wanted to check out and maybe hang a trail camera, there were six or eight cows and calves bedded right there. And, you know, I'd put the little pin and elk area to check out and there were elk right there. So it's kind of cool when it works out like that. It, it doesn't always for sure, but I think, uh, just with the, the advancement in technology and e-scouting, it makes it easier once you know what to look for to at least get you in the ballpark that you know we didn't have 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and one thing that, that I've learned through the you know the e-scouting stuff, and you can almost do, once you get out there and, and actually hunt them, you can, you can almost do reverse scouting, as I'd like to say. Like, say, I'd, I'll see where I'm actually seeing the elk at, you know, mark those pins. And then as I'm preparing for the following year, I can kind of look at that and see if there's any correlation with, you know, the stuff I was looking for before, you know, different terrain, vegetation, stuff like that, that, uh, you know, maybe there's some, some correlation there and it's, that seems to be, you know, really helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, what plans do you have for the 2020 season here? Man, we have we've struck out on everything we've applied for, so I'm uh, I'm still holding out hope in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, uh, got my fingers crossed there. I'm not going to hold my breath on that one though. But uh, we're just going to hunt over the counter here in Idaho, uh, my home state, and uh, we're fortunate that we can just buy a tag and and go and hunt. And then we're going to do the same thing in Oregon, just over the counter. Over there, we're going to hunt for Roosevelt elk, which this will be our third uh, attempt, third year in a row to hunt there. And or uh, we've got a, you know, we, we went into it last year saying we had a chip on our shoulder. I'm not going to say that this year. I think uh, we've we've been served humble pie two years in a row, and we're going to go into it a little more humble this year. And hopefully, that'll change our our luck. <laughs> yeah. So you'll be going to, you said Idaho and then Oregon. Are you hunting any other states over the counter? I'm not. So we've, uh, we did a, a giveaway. We gave away a, an elk hunt in Utah. And so I'll be a company accompanying the winner from that, uh, in Utah at the end of the month, uh, the end of September. And then we do the, uh, you know, the hunt of a lifetime hunt that we've done the last couple of years. We're doing that with outfitters for hope this year. Uh, here in Idaho, that'll be the first week of October. So uh, between the two hunts, you know, for, for me in Idaho and Oregon, and then the hunt winter hunt, and then the Outfitters for Hope hunt, and then hunting with my three kiddos pretty much every other spare minute, uh, I'll be spending plenty of time out in the elk woods for sure. Yeah, that, um, what's, what's crazy to me, you know, speaking of Idaho is um, the the fact that they sold out so early their over the counter tags. I you know I'm I wasn't planning on hunting Idaho this year, but man, that 
you know, last year I didn't buy my tag until July and that would have been too late. Yeah. And honestly, so in Idaho, it, it used to be a really cool thing. Any non-resident tags, there's a non-resident quota that's set aside basically. And for several years, I want to say 10, 12, 15 years, that quota was never met. They never sold all of those non-resident tags. So they allowed residents to buy a second non-resident tag or a second tag. You just had to pay the non-resident price. So we could hunt our home state and buy our, you know, our first tag for $36 or whatever, and then just pay the non-resident price and end up with a second tag. So we could hunt, you know, the same unit, same hunt with two tags and shoot two bulls, you know, on the same day, if we wanted, we could get a tag for, archery for one zone and another one for a completely different zone and basically go on two separate hunts we could get a tag for archery in one zone and rifle you know on the other side of the state and it almost became like a a fallback that if we didn't draw anything anywhere else we'd be like well we can always get a second tag in idaho and go hunt over there where we've always wanted to to check out and then about I don't know, five, six years ago, they started selling out, but it was in season. You know, season had already started. As long as you bought your second tag uh, before season started, you were fine. And even during season, there were several times we'd fill our tag and go and be like, yeah, there's still leftover tags. Let's go buy another one. And then uh, a couple of years ago, it was September 15th, somewhere in there, they sold out. And we hadn't filled our first tag yet. Like, man, we don't, we don't have that option anymore. And then last year, like you said, it, it sold out, I think, in August, August 10th or 15th, which mm-hmm. was the first time it had sold out before season. And then this year it sold out in what? June? May? Yeah, I think yeah. it was mid to early June, if I remember yeah. right. I think it was a day after Oregon results came out. And I think everyone who didn't draw their tag in Oregon jumped on and bought a non-resident tag here and... So, and that was the thing is residents didn't have the option to purchase one of those leftover tags until after August 1st. So, mm. yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. Do, what do you think the, the reason for that change is? I don't know. I was talking to somebody this morning and, you know, there's, there's been a lot of change in non-resident opportunity and, for, for residents, I know last year in Idaho, a lot of residents were complaining about the number of non-resident hunters, which doesn't make sense because they've been capped. It hasn't, you know, the number of non-resident tags has not increased, so it's not like there's more and more coming. Um, but there was definitely a, a strong push from residents of Idaho to further limit non-residents. And you know, in 2021, non-resident tags, the quota has been decreased and the price has been increased. Uh, Colorado's made some changes to a lot of the over-the-counter areas that are now draw only. Uh, Wyoming had a, a bill this spring to decrease the number of non-resident tags and increase the, the price for non-residents. So there's a pretty strong uh, current going in the direction of limiting non-resident opportunity and you know for somebody that's a resident of an elk state like idaho or something and you only hunt idaho you know i can see it maybe looking at it and saying gosh i just have to compete with more non-residents if we limit them my competition from outside sources won't be able to grow but when you look at it and think we're all 
you know, non-residents in 49 other states. I like to hunt other states. You know, it's, it's definitely uh, encroaching on, on our planning, on you know, how we go about structuring and planning our season. So it's, you know, I, I think that that's a lot of it. Just people are realizing, A, opportunity has already decreased in a lot of states like Colorado, uh, which has always been an open state for over-the-counter, just going and getting a tag. Um, I think people see on the horizon next year, non-resident opportunity is going to be limited in Idaho and the price is going to be higher. So we've been planning it forever. Let's just do it this year. I think there's a, a handful of things. It's certainly not because anybody shot a 400-inch bull or success rate at 50% or anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible. And like you were saying that, like I, I was thinking right now, like if I were to, you know, want to go pick up an over-the-counter tag somewhere, there's not as not that many options. Yeah, I think Colorado and Oregon are really the only two options. I think Washington does have some over-the-counter, but if you're desperate enough to – not to say they don't have – some good hunting there, but if it's your first time hunt, that is not even on the, the top 10 list, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't know, like, you know, last year in Idaho, we got pretty lucky. Like, we didn't have much problems with other hunters, residents or non-residents. Um, we, we had a pretty good, you know, spot there, but talking to other people, it was, you know, it was opposite, but it's, one, it's everyone's opinion opinion <laughs> on what is, you know, bad as far as pressure. And, you know, if you're going to this, you know, big trailhead that's pretty popular, then, you know, maybe there's going to be more people there than others, you know. And, like, where we hunted, it wasn't a trailhead at all. And it was kind of, like, in between places. And, and it just, you know, it, it made sense from that standpoint. And it, you know, it paid off for us. But... And, you know, I, I think if, if I were to hunt, you know, Colorado again, which I'm sure I will, I, I would take a little bit of that strategy to it because, you know, my first three years there, I was going to, you know, these big trailheads and stuff and wilderness areas and everything, but that's where it seemed like everybody was drawn to and, you know, ran into a lot more people there than I did in the, the spots that weren't, I guess, as, um, uh, didn't pop out at you on a map as much. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's, we used to say, get a mile off the road and, and you, you won't see other hunters and that's kind of changed. I mean, it really has, people are, are working harder and, and trying to find those pockets where the elk are. So you can't just say, get a mile off the road and you'll, you'll lose everybody else. I still think if you get a mile off the road, you're going to um, lose a lot of the people, but it's not 90% anymore. Yeah. Now we do have to, you know, kind of look for those little hidden gems of, the elk are doing the same thing. You know, if there's a lot of pressure in one area, the elk aren't just going to stay there and wait to get shot. They're going to move to to where they feel safe. And I think that's that's the key anymore to public land over-the-counter type hunting is you've just got to find those pockets where the elk are going because they feel safe. And if they're going there because they feel safe, it's probably not going to be a, an easy place to get to. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. What was amazing to me was, you know, in Idaho – uh, where I was at, this is the first time I was hunting a non-wilderness area for elk. So, you know, people are allowed to drive up and down the roads and you can get more places that way. The day, I think it was the day after I shot my elk, I was sitting at camp and, uh, it was, and we were truck camping. So we were down by the road 
It was amazing the amount of vehicles that were going up and down the road, just glassing from the truck <laughs> and, you know, talking to other people. There was, you know, a couple of older gentlemen that had pulled in and were basically saying, oh, you're not going to kill them sitting here at camp. You know, they're giving me that spiel. And, uh, but th- they're like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't go after them unless we see them, you know, from the road. And, uh, so there's, there's a lot of that going on, <laughs> at least specifically in that area. And, you know, it was, is as a lot of Idaho is, it was pretty gnarly country there. So once you kind of got off the trail and there wasn't any, you know, hiking trails in there, it was still, you could, you could definitely get away. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was good. So with, with these areas that you're going to here, um, in 2020, you know, in Idaho and in Oregon, are these all areas that you've been to in the past? They are. Yeah. So Idaho, you know, it's fortunate that, to be able to hunt your home state because you, you learn it and you're able to go back year after year and apply what you learn. But even with that, I'm, I'm continually learning new areas within the area. And this year is no different. And we're even actually looking at maybe trying to access some of these areas, uh, by different methods. You know, we've always been just on foot, but we've got so many motorcycle trails or there's a lot of logging roads that they gate off that uh you know can't ride motorized vehicles but you can take a mountain bike or an e-bike back on and so we're actually doing a lot of e-scouting this year kind of searching out some of those areas because i think hunting from the road is great you know you drive and you get out and you hike up the mountain um but i think hunting off of a an e-bike or a motorcycle just extends it that much farther now you're you're limiting the number of people who have a motorcycle so you can go in 10 miles on a motorcycle and then hike instead of hiking from a, a trailhead where everybody has a truck and can get there. So it's a similar concept. It's just using other modes of transportation to uh, extend the, the reach a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it's nice on, you know, Onyx, you can find those trails as far as like, and they'll even, when you click on them, it'll even tell you what's allowed, like whether it is just motorcycles or e-bikes or if it's, you know, four wheelers or side by sides up to X amount wide, you know, all that information's, you know, right there and uh, available. Yep. So that's, that's really nice. And so when, when you're going into, you know, some of these spots, say kind of what, what, um, you know, from a basic standpoint, what are you looking for from, you know, e-scouting here in the summer, um, you know, to, to really kind of extend, uh, you know, these hunts? Well, so, I mean, the first thing is obviously the, the trails and realizing we have access to motorcycles and e-bikes now. So I'm um, just looking to see what trails are there. There's great websites. I think most states have some kind of a travel uh, map that shows what's allowed where. And so just looking, you know, road closures, um, just looking to see what dates roads close. And if there's a road that closes on September 1st that tells me, Hey, this area behind here is not accessible anymore. Probably doesn't get as much hunting pressure. Uh, so we're looking basically starting at that point of trails and roads, seasonal closures, uh, roads that are closed year round to motorized vehicles and then motorcycle trails, uh, for that option. So a lot of the, the initial search and e-scouting is based off of those access points. Uh, from there, we're just basically looking at expanding into country that, that looks good in e-scouting. So we're looking for food and water and, and bedding areas. 
and really, you know, I just love to spin Google Earth so it's north facing and then look for those pockets that are north facing. And if I can find a handful of those, you know, a mountain range that runs north south off the north end of it, there's a bunch of little finger ridges that provide little benches and everything. I get pretty excited to check out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, when, when you're, you know, doing this e-scouting, are you marking like, you know, at least this many spots within an area to check out or like do you have any sort of like rules or like kind of like a hunt plan you put together for that yeah it's we i try to get at least one area for every day that we're going to hunt um you know as backup areas so if we're going to plan on hunting eight days i want eight separate areas that we could go into and basically just have a list of this one looks the most promising. We're going to go there first. If there's nothing there, day two, here's where we're going to go. Uh, I just, I hate coming back to the truck at the end of the day and not having a plan for the next day. You know, trying to think of, gosh, what should we do tomorrow? And with that being said, though, we've had times where we have done that and not having a plan in place has turned out to be, you know, we've discovered some pretty awesome areas that we never would have went to otherwise. So trying to take care of a lot of that in the summer of just, exploring new areas and and uh at least having an idea of of what to expect when we get there yeah and and when you're looking at you know on x and and google earth and everything you know areas look smaller than they are like you can you can find so many you know areas that like i remember just looking at it and be like oh i can go here this day or in the morning go here in the afternoon if no luck and it's like all right that takes a lot longer than uh, than you expect. So, <laughs> yep, yeah. Google Earth. I always say Google Earth is the biggest liar I know. Yeah, because you you sit there and you scout it and you're looking, and even when you look, you know, you you can see what the elevation is at the trailhead. You can see what the elevation is where you're going, and you think, okay, eighteen hundred feet in elevation. It's going to be a pretty good grind, but you know, we can do it. And then you get there and realize it's almost a vertical cliff and it's not just grinding up 1800 feet. It's actually navigating and finding a, a possible route. And you can't see Google earth doesn't do a real good job of showing you what a cliff looks like. No. <laughs> yeah. Like that was this, the same thing that spot I had marked. Um, it was the first morning of the hunt. So we got up real early to hike up to it and it was, it was close to 2,500 feet up from the truck and that just that sucked you know going up through there and then once we got off this little trail it was basically a rock shoot that went up and just try the boulders were a lot bigger than it looked like on the map too and just trying to figure out how to get through it and then it was super thick and it's it's definitely can uh be deceptive by looking at it online at times totally yep yeah, so Corey, what I want to what I want to hear is I want to hear a you know a story of a hunt that you have. I'm sure you got plenty of them, but one where like you were looking at it, you know, during the summer, trying to find these areas, and you went in there and you know ended up finding the elk, maybe you know where you were looking, where you had scouted them out, and just kind of tell a story of a of a hunt like that. Yeah, and there, you know, like we talked at the beginning, there are so many where we've put a pin and, and found elk or we've e-scouted and, and found just the perfect spot and went in there and found elk on the first day and, and shot elk. But I think the one that 
probably stands out the most in my mind was in Arizona uh, several years ago. And I'd never hunted that part of the unit before. I'd been down there the previous year with a friend who drew a tag uh, and had a great time. You know, there were tons of elk. That's actually why we decided to apply for that unit the next year. Uh, But in coming back and deciding to apply for that unit, I started doing some e-scouting and realized that there was a whole nother part of that unit we hadn't even been to or seen that looked just incredible. It's different terrain. You know, part of the part we were in initially was more of the pinion juniper stuff with some pine mixed in here and there. And then the part that I was getting excited about was peaks at eight and nine thousand feet and heavy timber and no access. And and so in doing all of the e-scouting there, you know, just the normal routine that we do, just really flying over the, the unit at a high elevation uh, and getting a feel for where these pockets are, where the the roads are, where the access points are, and then based on that, where the pockets are that get you a long ways away from it, and just started really finding all these different areas and marking them and doing exactly, you know, what I said as far as prioritizing having several backup areas, but, you know, we're, it's a, I remember 16 hour drive or something down to, to Arizona from here, so we didn't have an opportunity to go and do any boots on the ground scouting. We had uh, actually scouted camping spots and got camp set up the the first night and left camp and went to spot number one and got out of the truck. And just while we were grabbing packs and bows out of the back of the truck, elk started bugling. (laughs) And it just, you know, it's one of those things that you can go into a brand new area you've never been to before and immediately be hunting elk instead of locating elk and so that that's one that just is probably it stands out most because it was really the first time i'd really taken e-scouting seriously and spent a bunch of time and and marked a bunch of uh backup spots to go to and and really almost every spot we went to we were into elk and it it kind of gave me the the uh just that platform i've got to do more e-scouting i've got to do this every year and just have spot after spot and in doing it for the last gosh i don't know eight years nine years pretty pretty seriously it just reiterates every year that man you can find elk from home without even going to the unit if you if you know what you're looking for and if you put in the time you can at least really increase your your likelihood of being into elk a lot sooner than if you didn't do any of that. So you, you mentioned something in there where, you know, there was a lot of the unit was, unit was uh, the pinions and junipers with some, you know, pines mixed in. And then you found this area of dark timber. What is, why do you prefer the areas with more dark timber? I don't know. And it's, you know, there, there are guys and, and gals that hunt the desert states that just love being able to glass from, two or three miles away, you know, first thing in the morning, they glass up a bowl and they say, that's when I want to go and hunt. And they, they make a plan and go hunt it. I think where I use my bugle to locate elk, I just like to get into areas where I have big ridges I can hike. And I think that's just some of the anticipation and the excitement of calling an elk is you don't know, uh, in, in the dark timber like that, you don't know what's, what's going to pop out until it pops out and you're at full draw. And, you know, I think that 
in my mind, and it's probably completely wrong, but the, the bigger bulls, the more mature bulls that have eluded hunters for years and years, they hide out in that deep, deep, dark timber and they just, they go back in where nobody else wants to go and nobody ever lays eyes on them. And of course the first five point that comes in, I'm more than happy to shoot. So most of the time <laughs> I don't get a, don't get a dig deep enough to find that big bull that's hiding back in there. But, uh, I don't know. There's just, there's an allure to that timber where you don't see the elk until it's right there stepping out and you've called it in. I, I think, you know, a lot of the the guys and girls listening from, you know, the East can, that hunt whitetails can relate to that. I know with, you know, me hunting big timber whitetails, like the, the biggest bucks are living in areas that they have thick cover around and you're going back in some of these nasty spots. And that doesn't always mean far from the roads, but, you know, having that, that, you know, thick timber that they can hide. I mean, when, when you can glass them up, you know, that gives more opportunity for people to go after them rather than in that dark timber it's a little bit more difficult to locate them unless you're using like a bugle tube like like your style hunting you know entails yeah yeah and i think you know even like in idaho where it's a general over-the-counter archery hunt and then a couple weeks later they have a general over-the-counter rifle hunt in a lot of the same units the open country those bulls that are out in the open during a rifle season are going to get shot Mm -hmm. and you know, so I just, I, in my mind, I think the, a rifle hunter in that thick timber is going to really struggle when the elk aren't bugling. So I think more elk are, are bound to survive the rifle season in, in that kind of country. I think that's where the elk are going to go once they get pressure, whether it's, you know, archery season, rifle season, whatever, they're going to go into, like you said, that deep, dark timber, the thick stuff where they can literally just hang out and somebody can walk by them 20 yards away and, and not see them. So, um, I guess that's maybe me jumping the gun a little bit on, on uh, finding the sanctuaries before they actually have to go to the sanctuaries and (laughs) hope that there's hope there's an elk that's just decided to make that his permanent home. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that makes sense though. And, and where I was at in Idaho, it had a lot more open country than I was used to in Colorado but where I ended up killing my bull, there was that meadow that was open, but it was up high and it was all dark timber around there. And, um, it was, it was interesting to, to see that. I mean, I saw multiple bulls that day. The first one that I actually saw that was heading back to bed earlier than the one that, that I ended up shooting, he was a big six by six. We got him on, on video. He came, you know, across and was heading, he skirted the other side of the meadow not the side we were on so he was out about 100 yards it was it was too far for a shot and then he went up and bedded on the the back side in this north facing you know slope and we were actually waiting for the thermals to settle down to try to go in and call him up out of his bed when i looked up over the saddle it was open on the top and i saw my bull pushing some cows down over and then they ended up running you know right in in front of us there but that was the first place that i was able to you know at least a little bit in the lower country glass a little bit but like i said that's where a lot of the people in the the vehicles were watching them as well yeah um so and i you know and i actually do like to hunt that country like where you were where you've got an open ridge and then on the back side is timber and so they'll come out and feed on the open ridge and then they drop into the timber to to bed down for the day definitely advantageous to be able to spot 
uh, in the morning at first light and spot the elk out on those open ridges and then make a game plan to get in and hunt them once they go into the timber. So there's definitely uh, advantages there. Yeah, definitely was able, you were able to kind of tell where they were bedding a little bit easier than continuous timber. Yeah. So that, that once they get in that continuous timber, they might go three miles in the timber and go past ideal bedding places. But when they're on that open ridge and they drop over and there's a a well-used game trail that goes right down to a bench, especially if you've done your, your e-scouting, you can can really hone in on where they're going to bed and be in there hunting them. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, so Corey, I was just, as I'm, as I'm, we're sitting here talking, I was thinking of, you know, last year you had your destination elk series on, on YouTube and the, the video that seemed to go around like crazy was that bull that was screaming in your face. Uh, <laughs> I I want to, I want to hear that story from, from your perspective there and kind of how, how you kind of got into that situation, you know, with the, with the first bull and, and everything there, what, what, what did that look like? Yeah. So that, uh, that situation I, last year, Donnie shot his bull on opening day in Idaho. So we had, I think nine days planned to hunt. He shot his bull opening day. So that gave me eight days of just me being the shooter. So I thought I don't get a chance very often to pass up bulls and I just, you know, and I still don't pass up very many bulls, but I thought I'm going to hold out for a mature bull. It doesn't have to be any certain score or anything, just a, a representative bull for the area we're hunting. And that meant we're able to go and hunt some of those areas where we might be able to find a, a more mature bull. And so we did, we went on a couple huge hunts and uh, got into some really nice bulls and just didn't work out. And this bull was probably our number three backup area we went to. And, uh, he's bugling across the Canyon at night. We actually heard him the night before and we tried going in the next morning and the wind was just bad. And so we actually went down Canyon, drove down Canyon and came in from below and, uh, couldn't hear him bugling, couldn't find him. And so we circled back around, uh, that evening and got up in there where we had heard him bugling, worked in quietly and started calling and he answered and, Right before dark, I got my first look at him. He's just really beautiful six by six. You know, one of those bulls, I said, okay, that's a mature bull. He's, he's, he's on, the, on the target list now. And we had a plan for the next morning and realizing that we'd kind of been, every time we'd get close to him and call, he would move out. He kept calling, but we just, he had cows. It was towards the end of the season. He just kept that buffer there, which is really normal. And I thought, what we're going to do is beat him in his own game. We're just going to go in there and get him to talk and then just move in quiet. Cause he keeps talking. It's just when we talk that he, he moves away. And so we just went up there thinking we're going to listen. We're going to listen. We're going to move in and we're just going to let him keep talking. Cause he's got a bed down and we know that he beds on that hill. And once he beds down, we've got him. And so we, we did, we got up there that morning and he was talking and we slipped down, got the wind just perfect. We actually, it was probably 10, 10 in the morning by the time we hiked in there and got in on him. So the wind's starting to come up the hill. He bugled from down below us. A couple of cows off to our left were, were talking. So we knew they were there and we had to be careful. And we started sliding down this little alder patch and he was probably 150, 200 yards below us. And again, we're not calling at this point. We're just letting him do all the calling. And, uh, 
slipping down through this alder patch. And we got to the point where we had to cross through the alders and it's just thick and really hard to go through uh, without making noise. And before we even started, the, the wind switched just enough side hill that the cows that were off to our left got a, got a whiff of us and started crashing down the hill. So whenever that happens, anytime I bust cows or jump cows or anything, I like to just crash right at them, scream out a big bugle, get the bull fired up, and uh, make him think another bull's coming through and, and harassing the cows. And a lot of times that bull will come in. Well, this time I thought, I'm not even going to bugle it because he's in his place. He feels safe. The cows didn't, you know, they, they're probably going to run down to him, but they won't chase him out of there. So I used their, their noise of them busting to break through the alders. And we broke out on the other side. And the bull bugled on his own, and I thought, we've got him. We're, we're in perfect position. We've got the wind. He's uh, he's riled up because the cows are running, and we haven't even called, so he doesn't even know we're here. And so we slipped up to the edge there, and we had maybe 80 or 90 yards between us and the bull. And he bugled again. And so I'm literally starting to range stuff down below. And all of a sudden, John, the camera guy, said, elk, 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 cow, cow, cow. And another cow up where they had winded us from was coming down, coming right through where we're at. So she came by at like 30 yards, stopped broadside at 30 yards, looks down the hill to where the, the big bull is. And it just couldn't have been any better. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that bull's down there, a cow's coming down the hill. We're going to be able to move down towards him. And he's just going to think we're more cows coming down the hill. And about then, John said, bull, bull, bull. And there was a, a bull that was following the cow down the hill, and he did the exact same thing. He came to right down through the, the trail right by where we were, and I thought at that point, I can pass this bull up and hope to get the, the bigger bull. Or I've been in a, a bit of a slump for a couple of hunts here, and I'm ready to fill the freezer. And if he stops, I, in my mind, I said, if he stops broadside at 25 or 30 yards, I can't pass up that shot. And so his bull follows the cow down the hill, stops broadside, I shoot, and he runs maybe 30 or 40 yards and falls over. Meanwhile, the big bull starts screaming down there. The cows all take off with all the chaos, and we hear him follow the cows, and he's bugling up the mountain out of sight and, and out, of, out of ear range. So we go down, we're taking pictures of my bull, we drag it over into the shade, we're getting everything all set up, we're doing a little video interview there. And we literally get the knives out. I have a knife in my hand. We're walking over to start skinning the elk. And Donnie says, did you hear that? And I said, no. And he's like, a, a branch just broke over there. So we all stop what we're doing and listen. And sure enough, you can hear crunch, 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 crunch. And as, as luck would have it, that big bull we'd been chasing comes walking back, wanting to bed down in his bedding area, which is exactly where the bull I just shot is laying. And so he comes through, you know, just literally just sun in his eyes. It's noon at this point. Uh, you can tell he's half asleep, just plodding along, walking right up the hill, right towards us. And he gets to about eight yards or so. And I'm just standing out in the open. John and Donnie are standing right next to me. Fortunately, Donnie had told John, grab the camera. So John's filming everything. And, uh, this bull gets into about eight yards from us and he stops and he looks over to his right 
And we'd propped my bowl up to take pictures of it, you know, kind of tuck the legs up under it. And it looks like it's just bedded right there, just laying, <laughs> laying there in a bed. And uh, this bull sees it. And I've seen him do it a handful of times on like trail cameras and things where you get two or three bulls that are right there together. And the dominant bull will hiss. He'll curl his lips and actually hiss, make a hissing sound. And I've seen it a couple times on trail cameras. I've never experienced it, you know face-to-face like that, but he sees that bull laying in his bed, and he makes just this dominant pose and starts walking right at us as he lays his head back, curls his lips, and hisses right in my face, and at about four yards, I realize things could get really ugly here. He's mad that another bull's in his bedding area. He's half asleep. It's middle of the day. If I don't make a move now, he might come right over the top of me, so I actually kind of jumped at him with the knife and uh he ran 10 yards and was so confused he certainly wasn't expecting us to be there and didn't know what we were and so he stops broadside at 10 yards and looks at us and then turns broadside the other way and walks out to 20 yards looking at us before he realizes something's wrong and he crashes off but (laughs) oh that is crazy that was one of those times when you think man could you imagine if I would have had a, a leftover non-resident tag, a second tag, or if I would have passed up that other bull, had I passed up that other bull, none of that would have happened. Um, probably wouldn't have shot a bull at all last season. But yeah, you just you relive that over and over in your mind. What if I would have been at full draw right there at four yards with that bull head laid back like that? Oh man, pretty cool experience. So yeah, that's 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 an experience that. Yeah, you you probably won't uh, have that replicated anytime soon. No, like like I said, we've I've never experienced that personally, and we've had people that you know they'll comment and be like, "Man, that bull got a big whiff of your scent," or that bull was just getting ready to bugle, and you know it, it actually wasn't. It was literally hissing and uh, just a, a display of dominance when they're in close with each other like that. Yeah, that's that's so cool, and and you know the the story leading up to it too is is neat, and that you know there's a few things you said there that's not something that can really be taught as far as like with you you know the cows making noise, so then you realize you can make noise. Those are all things that I'm sure through your experience have just you know led you to to do that. That's not something that you can necessarily read in a book as far as a strategy. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it it really does come from experiences of messing up so many times that, you know, you're working in on a bull as he's bugling and how many times, you know, you look over to your left 30 yards and there's a cow looking at you and the cow takes off or barks or whatever. And your first natural reaction is throw your hands up in the air, man, that hunt's messed up. It's over. But when you think about it, the bull doesn't, he didn't see you. If the bull doesn't see you, he doesn't know what the cow's running from or barking at. And so a lot of times if the cow barks like that, I'll bark right back and, you know, take off at the bull. But if those cows take off running like that, a lot of times if you just take off running right with them and scream a big challenge bugle, that bull hears it. And in his mind, he's thinking there's another bull that snuck in that, you know, is chasing my cows around. He's hearing the cows running. He hears the bull bugle. He's going to come running to the bugle to, to fight you and run you off. And you know, it happened, in fact, the day before the experience I just described, uh, we had found a, another mature bull and did that exactly. We just couldn't pull him. He, he'd come to 80 yards, but he wouldn't come the rest of the way. 
And we just started following him back over to where he'd been bedded and got on a ridge. And sure enough, there's a cow standing there at 25 or 30 yards, sees us. She busts out there and takes off running. So I ran right at her and bugled. And uh, having experienced it enough times, I got up to a point where I figured the bull wouldn't be able to see me. He'd have to come up the hill and I could see antlers coming up as he was, you know, 25, 30 yards away and dropped to my knees and drew back and lifted up just as he turned broadside and went behind a little root wad of a uprooted log. And that turned out to be the, my, my demise that day as a, a bow hunter. Cause that little stump sticking up there caught the blade of my broad head and oh. deflected my arrow at 25. I mean, literally, we walked up there and took a picture of it. But there's just a slice of the edge of a blade of a broad head right in it. And that 16th of an inch made the difference. That, that's crazy. And, you know, I, you know, I learned a little bit last year um, through the same experience when, when I was hunting my bull and, so he was following some cows across this meadow and the wind was just off. You know, it was, it was in their favor, but it was just, you know, for where they were headed. And I was just off to the side and the wind shifted. I could feel it at the back of my neck and the cows were walking into that and the bull wasn't close enough at this point. And one of the cows caught my wind and took off back into the timber and the bull followed them back in and i thought you know, like oh man like i just screwed that up that was my opportunity and not even three minutes later they all came right back out some new cows came down and went back out in that meadow and that bull got right behind them <laughs> came right back out and then that's when i had my opportunity man which that, <laughs> I, I was like i can't believe that that you know happened that way with uh with you know them him coming out in the exact same spot twice and at this time then he he stopped broadside at, at 60 yards and I was able to shoot, but it was, uh, it was, it was pretty incredible to see that. And, and the same thing, like, you know, I'd relate a lot of the stuff that I've learned, you know, even with whitetails and stuff, not, not all the time when you, you blow out the does or whatever, that it's going to screw up your hunt for the, the buck that might be, you know, bedded, you know, out a little bit further on the point or down below them. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's just something that kind of correlates a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've had instances before where a young bull will come in ahead of the, the herd bull and they'll see us and we are, you know, whether it's a spike or something, we aren't wanting to shoot them and they'll just stand there and start barking. And pretty soon the bull will scream a bugle, you know, right up there. So it doesn't always necessarily run them off. You know, as soon as they bark, it's not like it's game over. Everything just vacated the area. Sometimes it does. But it's not always, and you know, we've found there's some things you can do a lot of times to settle them back down and make them think that everything's okay. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So with with these areas that you're hunting this year, um, are you doing? Did you you know? I know there's said there are areas you've hunted before, but are you running trail cameras or anything in there to kind of know what you're hunting, or or do you kind of go into them blind for the most part? We're, we're running a few, and it's kind of hard in Idaho uh, versus other states just because uh, we can't use any kind of bait or attractant. And so setting a trail camera, you, know, you can set them on game trails and saddles and everything, but it's so, you know, you, 
we don't get thousands and thousands of pictures. I know people in, in other states that they'll come back and check their camera and there's 1,500 pictures on it, all of elk. And I'll go check some of mine. I'll have four pictures on it from two months of, of being out there. So don't put a whole lot of effort or, or stock in it. And the other thing is, you know, I think you can read sign and tell pretty close how many elk are in an area uh, without a trail camera. We aren't targeting animals. You know, we aren't necessarily looking for the one bull that we want to hunt. Um, so we just, we don't put as much emphasis or, or energy into trail cameras, uh, but they're still fun and we definitely go and, and put them out. Yeah, no, that's, that that's a fair assessment of it there. Um, so the, the last thing I want to ask you here, Corey, you know, you've, you've had, you know, consistent success over the years of doing this. Is there, is there anything that you think that you do or other successful elk hunters do that, you know, that whether that's a mindset or that's some sort of knowledge, is there any sort of things that will really help people, you know, right now as they're preparing for the season to go into it, that might be able to, you know, help get them that edge a little bit? Yeah, I really think it comes down to confidence and just you said the mindset and it really is every time I step into the elk woods, I expect to be successful and you know, I'm disappointed way more times than not, but I think it's just that mindset of, you know, I'm confident. I today can be my day and I'm going to attack it. Like I'm going to be successful today and you know, I'm going to make it happen. And I think being more aggressive than timid, uh, having that mindset of, of, uh, today's the day that I'm going to be confident and going into it confidently. And I think it really comes, uh, comes down to your preparation and, you know, a lot of, some of it can be gear. You've got to be confident in your gear for sure. But I think yourself being confident in yourself, whether that's the physical side, whether that's your knowledge of elk, whether that's your ability to, to uh, execute a successful hunt, all of those things, confidence in what to do in each situation, you know, at least going through five or 10 situations that you can think of that might prevent you from being successful, going through those and what you're going to do in those situations, uh, visualizing that success when the bull comes into your calls and he comes into that opening, you know, literally visualize an elk walking through the trees when you're going to draw on him, when he, how you're going to stop him, how you're going to execute the shot. All those things will will increase your confidence, and I really feel that uh, knowledge equals confidence, preparation equals confidence, and in the end, confidence equals success. Yeah, that's that's a, a very good point, and it's funny, you know. This is I've this is episode I think one forty one. This will be, and you know, I've interviewed a lot of people, whether that's hunting elk or or whitetails or anything else, and all the ones that are consistently successful say that about confidence and you have to have the confidence going into it and, and knowing that. And I mean, I'm a huge believer in, in mindset in general and anything in life. And I know you're, you're big into reading books and, 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 you know, so am I, which actually I do a lot more audio book listening now, but, uh, yep. <laughs> but still, uh, you know, that's, I, I think in, in any aspect of, of life, that's, that's huge. Definitely. Yep. You have to, you have to put yourself in that position, um, with your preparation to gain that confidence. And then also through experience, you know, it definitely, 
You can be confident your first time out without ever having experienced elk hunting before. Um, but as you start to see things unfold and you start to be able to react to them, that just increases your confidence even more. And I think when you get to that point, you, you can realistically step out every time and expect to be successful. And, you know, that, that's where mindset comes in again, because you're going to fail seven times before you have any success, you know, if you go off of averages, but um, you've got to be prepared mentally to, to not only absorb those failures, but learn from them and not let them beat you up and get you down. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, that's, that's really important. So Corey, is there anything else that, that you can think of that you want to leave the listeners with here? We're hitting uh, the hour mark here. So I'm thinking of wrapping this one up, but just anything else that you can think of or want to leave everyone with here? No, not really. I think, you know, just overall that, you know, especially your audience where it's more uh, maybe somebody who hasn't had the chance to experience elk hunting and maybe it's on the bucket list and, you know, they're thinking someday I'm going to do that. You know, I think it's just so important to make a plan and execute on that and and don't wait. You know, we talked a little bit earlier that non-resident hunting opportunities are starting to I wouldn't say dry up, but they're becoming more and more difficult. And we're living in just the the good old days right now of elk hunting with the things like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has, has done to really increase habitat and access and, and conserve elk. Um, now's the time to do it. So if it's on your bucket list or it's uh, something you've been thinking about, make a plan and execute on that plan and make it happen. Yeah, i I couldn't agree more. That was the best decision that I had ever made was to just do it and go for it. And, you know, I may have not been as prepared as I needed to be going into it my first time, but by doing it, it's not going to be your last time. I promise. (laughs) That's uh, in the online course. I say that, that it's going to take a lot of work and, you know, saving up. We talk about the cost, what it's going to cost you to go on it and what the expenses are. And then at the end of the disclaimer of, if you think this is going to be a one-time trip, you might want to plan ahead because I know very few people that come out West Elk hunting that don't make multiple return trips. You know, and I, I always, you know, when someone says to me, oh, elk hunting is a bucket list item, I I almost kind of come back with, I, I don't really consider it a bucket list item because it's something that you're, you're going to want to do more. You know, I think yeah. of a bucket <laughs> list thing, I think of something I want to do once where this is like... I, I want to hunt elk all the time. <laughs> yep. This this is a lifestyle now. It's not a bucket list thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a year long, you know, it's, yeah, it's become an entire lifestyle for it and, you know, for the better in every aspect. And, you know, you and I did a podcast. Uh, one of the ones we did is uh, about a year and a half ago now um, that was, you can go back and look for it, anyone listening, but it's called, you know, planning a DIY elk hunt and, and Corey breaks down a lot more of the whole planning and the budgeting phase of it and everything there. And, and then to go even deeper, the, the University of Elk Hunting online course breaks it down with numbers and everything there to be able to help you plan for it. And, you know, once you have, you know, the, the gear and stuff for it, it just, it just becomes really gas and tags after that. Yeah, it's, it's not as expensive, especially with over-the-counter do-it-yourself options. I think, you know, once you realize what states have availability of those tags and, and dive in and say, I'm going to do it, this is where I'm going to go, 
uh, I think it surprised a lot of people how relatively inexpensive it is to have that kind of an experience. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So Corey, where can people find some more information on you, some of the stuff we talked about here and uh, University of Elk Hunting online course? Yeah, just uh, elk101.com is our website and we've got all sorts of content there, uh, articles, different things. That's where you can also sign up for the online course or learn more about it. Uh, and then uh, our YouTube channel, which is just Elk 101 on YouTube. Uh, I've got a lot of content there, some educational, some entertainment. And then uh, social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Elk 101 on both of those. Awesome. And for anyone listening, the University of Elk Hunting online course, you'll hear it at the beginning. But just a reminder, if you use the coupon code East Meets West, you'll save yourself 20% off of the course. So a uh, little deal there to, to help you check it out. Definitely. Well, Corey, thank you for coming on again. I, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me here and help everyone out. So once again, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me to be on. And I think this time of year, it just becomes easier and easier to talk about elk hunting and <laughs> just make it through the next few weeks till we can actually get out and start chasing them. For sure. Well, good luck to you, Corey. I appreciate it. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.